Welcome from Ernco Studios in Evanston, Illinois. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of Metal Forming Industry Insiders podcast. This is sponsored by Ermco. My name is James Rappaport. I'm the Senior Business Development Manager at Ermco. I would like to introduce our first guest, Danny Schaeffler. He is the President of Engineering Quality Solutions. Welcome, Danny. Can you give us a brief background about yourself? Thanks, James. Thanks to Ermco as well uh, for sponsoring this podcast. Um, as James said, I'm uh, Danny Schaeffler, President of Engineering Quality Solutions. Uh, EQS is a uh, consulting firm specializing in the influence that different sheet metals will have, be it steel, stainless, aluminum, alloys, their influence on the stamping success uh, that uh, sheet metal manufacturers have. We've worked with companies of all sizes, projects from as little as uh, half a day to half a year, um, improving process and helping manufacturing companies work with the full range of sheet metal properties that they can uh, expect. So we've uh, had good fortune to work with many companies over the past 20 years. And I would like to also introduce Jim Evangelista. He is recently retired, congratulations. He is the former executive director of technology of business development. Currently, he's a principal at J&JE Consulting. Jim, can you give us a brief overview of what you've done in the industry and what you currently are doing? Yeah, I started, like I said, I've been here a long time. I started way back in 1976 with Ford Motor Company. Uh, we were in what they called General Products Division, which was the stamping division back then. Um, Sandusky was a stamping plant. Uh, Rose was a stamping plant back then. And so I've been in the stamping business, on, you know, similar, very similar to Danny, most of my career. And uh, what we've looked at is different materials as the material selections grew, as the lightweighting um, fads come back and forth. It's been there before, went away because of cost and came back now. We're looking at sustainability. We're looking at the environment. We're looking at a lot of things uh, to do that. So as, I, as my career progressed, I moved from... Uh, Ford Motor Company. I worked at Chrysler for a while. I worked at American Motors for a long time. That was probably an interesting job to have. Then I moved out into the supplier world, uh, mostly working with Shiloh Industries. As we grew from a, uh, a heavy gauge blanking company to a uh, uh, engineered products, which was basically the metal stamping side of the world. Then we went into the lightweighting structures where we also added castings in there. Um, so we had a, a whole uh, very, very broad view of what, what could be done. And so as, as we progressed, you know, my, you get older, you kind of semi-retire and you say, I still have a lot of things that I, a lot of knowledge that I want to share with people. Um, and, uh, and I've been doing that, uh, since uh, January, I've helped, helped a lot of people that have, you know, called up and said, Hey, you know, what's your experience has been with this and where you're going and how do you build a business case with that? The last 10 years, I've actually worked in innovation and research and development, which did a lot of a lot of um, joining of these uh, new materials coming in, uh, a lot of forming of those new materials, and a lot of looking at the issues that are coming up, not only with the advanced high-strength steels, but with aluminum. And then also we did a lot of work with the true Gen 3 steels, which we may get into a little bit here. 
uh, they're a whole different animal to talk about. I would like to also introduce Steve Lynn, Executive Director of Engineering and Technologies for Shiloh Industries. It's great to have you with us, Steve. Could you tell me a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I have been in the auto industry for over 25 years. I started from the kind of like uh, operation manufacturer, build up the new plant. My advanced degree is uh, <laughs> uh, advanced manufacturer for automotive industry. So that my, my master degree received it uh, 1995. So then I started with uh, Tower Automotive, pure stamping and structure welding company. Later on, I moved to Ford, spent eight years at Ford, Vistian, ACH, and Ford back Ford again. I left Ford, um, started working with, the, actually hired by the Chinese government to acquire Dolphi chassis. I in charge uh, business acquisition for acquired Dolphi to be a Chinese state-owned company. Also the GM next year, those are over billion dollars business. After that, when I left the Chinese company, joined a Europe company to acquire uh, a U.S. company, doing the same thing, consolidated engineers and relining up the engineer resource from manufacturer to product design. And then uh, from that on, totally, I, I went through five merge acquisition from 2008, um, let's say, to 2018, 10 years. So that's pretty much my career is. We set up a new headquarters, set up a new tech center in different regions, closed down some tech centers, and then consolidated engineer resource. That's what I do. And then uh, I consider myself as kind of like a mixed with product design and manufacturer experience, also mixed with OEM and the tier one supplier experience. And I want to, like I said, I want to thank you for uh, taking me under your wing back in the early days and helping me with stamping. I mean, the the five of you on the call have really given me a lot of stamping knowledge, and I really appreciate that, Steve, what you did for me. I really do. Thank I, you. I believe oh, that my previous job at the Metalsa and then Ermco uh, uh, has done a great job for 51% Lubrication cost reduction, that, that's a significant, we're talking about millions of dollars, right? That was that. So who, who I team up with, like in my, my own philosophy, I want to team up the, the, when you play sport, you know, you team up with winner, you will be another winner. You team up with loser, it doesn't matter how good you are, you will be another loser, right? <laughs> so this is the, 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 my philosophy, so. Great uh, experiments to work with in uh, Armco. I'd like to introduce the other two uh, colleagues of mine at Armco. The first one is Frank Kenny. He's our vice president. Um, and then I would like to introduce our the really the eye candy of the group, our CEO of Armco, Jeff Jeffrey. And before I hand it off to him, I would like to say the reason why. I wanted to start this podcast is because when I was new in the industry four or five years ago, I was trying to figure out how do I get involved with automotive and building relationships. And the first two people that I reached out to were you two. And I was asking a lot of questions and 
you always gave me honest answers and you always went to bat for me. And if it wasn't if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't have even been a little bit as successful as I am today. So I really appreciate that what you guys have done for me. I think you're titans of the industry. I think that it's a shame that the younger generation isn't getting the kind of knowledge that you guys have gotten over the years. So I hope that you talk to many other people to share your knowledge. So I really appreciate it. And I thank you again. And Jeff, go ahead. All right. Thanks, James. Um, I also consider both of you guys, uh, our guests, as friends in the industry. I've known both of you for a while and um, really appreciate you taking your time out today to share your your intellect and your insights as to what our industry is going through and what and how people might be able to approach uh, the changes that are going on here in, a, in an educated, uh, data-driven way. So thank you again. Um, we'll also go to involve Frank Kenny. Uh, James introduced him as well. Uh, Frank and I have worked together for over 20 years, um, and uh, he'll be interjecting on some technical questions and giving some perspective on some of the things we've worked on in the industry. Um, and so we'll call on him in a little bit here. But so the, the first question I want to ask, and I think it, I think the timing is pretty good. And that is we're now we're now exiting what we what people are going to probably call the, you know, the pandemic years. And uh, we had an industry that was clipping along pretty good pre pandemic. And now we have we have a lot of issues going on post pandemic logistics, materials, shortages, cost increases. We've got international issues going on right now. Um, so I'd like to ask you both to kind of comment on, to contrast your belief structure or your ideas. What were you thinking pre-pandemic and how has that changed post-pandemic on, on helping our industry deal with what's going on right now? So I'll, I'll start with Danny. So what do you think about that, Danny, when, you, when you're asked to kind of help people prepare for what's next? Well, um, I'm not sure how much the pandemic changed things. Um, I think maybe magnified um, certain uh, weaknesses uh, we have in the supply chain, uh, but they've always been there um, because we are in a global supply and a global manufacturing industry. Um, I, th I think of, um, and if we just want to look at the automotive industry, um, there are very few platforms that are manufactured in one country and one country only. Certainly the F-150, Silverado, you know, the, the heavy trucks, um, that, that is U.S.-based. But mostly globally, um, there are global platforms. And when there are global platforms, uh, manufacturers target... Um, a global supply base, so equal grades uh, must be available in every region of the world um, in terms of the sheet metal. And in terms of manufacturing, um, equal product quality has to occur um, around the world. Uh, so I don't see that the pandemic has changed things um, I think that's still a major issue, major concern. Um, but now we've got a much tighter supply 
from the sheet metal side. And, and that is where my expertise, my you know, daily life takes me. So, you know, my, my comments are biased on that side. Um, uh, Pre-pandemic, the industry, the uh, steel industry, as an example, might have been running at 65 to 70% capacity. Um, and now I'm seeing numbers north of 80% capacity. Um, and from the steel industry side, I mean, that, that's a huge difference um, when it comes to, well, for one thing, profitability, but also there's a lot of many more scheduling concerns on their side. So that gets exacerbated in the um, automotive industry, which is based, had been based on just-in-time delivery. Um, and of course, if you've got 600 stamp parts going into a vehicle, you actually need metal for all 600 stamp parts uh, if you want to assemble a vehicle. We've learned that with the um, uh, semiconductor chips as well. So um, I don't think the pandemic in and of itself changed things. I think it just brought a lot of um, underlying issues to the forefront. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great perspective on that. I, 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 I like that, that uh, we're just, we, we had some weaknesses and we just, they got exposed in a big way. Some of them are, are you know, harder to deal with than others. And I know the one thing that's happened um, with, uh, with car inventories, a lot of the automotive folks, they had their, their inventory months, you know, worth of inventory. Now they, they're able to produce, have smaller inventories and charge more for the car. And exactly. realizing their profit model changed. Yeah. Shockingly, uh, on some of these shortages. Shockingly, so, when yeah, you don't yeah. discount your vehicles, you wind up yeah. making more money. Um, <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah, I know that's something that the, the, the billion the, with a B is, uh, is happening a lot right now. So, Jim, you've had a lot of experience with OEMs and also Tier 1. Your most recent experience was with a, with a, with a very successful Tier 1. What, uh, so, so what's your view on what, on what Danny has said and what you think might be, might be happening next? I think that the biggest change... Uh, through this pandemic was um, the, the labor force. You know, a lot of the older people um, have decided to retire and we're losing a lot of our knowledge base. And, and it's, it's not only their decision to retire, but a lot of the companies that wanted to cut costs because volumes are down, because they want to focus on something. They, they wanted, their budgets are different they wanted to get rid of the higher paid people. Unfortunately, the higher paid people in a lot of cases are the knowledge-based people. And, and, and it's kind of funny because after they've retired, um, they've been hired back as contractors or consultants. And it's, it's kind of an interesting model where they can now flex. If, if, if the people are willing to come back, they can flex that knowledge. When they need it, they bring them in. When they don't need it, they go back and they do whatever they want to do at home. It's, it's it, it, if you if you have a, a good relationship with the company. I've seen it happen at Shiloh a lot of times. Some of our our tool and die guys and our, our, our die designers and things like that um, took retirement, and then about a month later, they're back working again because business came in. And when that business is done, they'll go back and they'll work on their homes, they'll work on their farms, uh, whatever they do, and they'll go back and forth for a while. Uh, and you'll see that and hopefully the younger people coming in will pick up these skills and will replace them when they finally start to, start to fully retire. But I think that, that the pandemic has 
pushed that. I think we were moving in that direction, but it really pushed that to where, to where you see that's happened a lot. Um, and then like Danny said, from a global standpoint, you know, stampings don't ship very well. They've always been a regional, regional thing. But what hasn't been regional, what has been, was global, was tooling, the tool, the tool and die industry. A lot of our tool and die work went to um, uh, Southeast Asia, went to China, um, went to Korea. Uh, but now with the um, with the transportation, with the shortages, with uh, with a lot of dock, the, the, the boats trying to get in, you didn't fly these dies back unless you had to because it's too expensive. So you got to start rethinking that supply chain now and say, okay, hmm, how are we going to do this? And what are we going to do? You still have to cost, keep your invested costs down, but you've got to really think of what's important. What can you get somewhere? How do you manage this thing? And how do you make sure that you can get those components? If you're bringing those components from the tools back to assemble here, how do you get them back here in this country? So those are the, those are the things that I see coming out of the pandemic uh, that we really have to do a little bit differently. Wow, it's a it's a real it's a real treat to have you guys here talking to us and, and giving us your perspective. Um, so the question we're asking today, uh, Steve, is, is is there anything that's happening post pandemic that you'd like to warn people about or give us your perspective on what should we be doing differently or or what are the things we have the pitfalls we need to watch out for as we come out of the pandemic and prepare for what's next. Well, clearly we see an industry trend to move on the lightweight material. Jim and I were in this industry for quite a long time. We can see it. We did a very early job, but it was not mature. Looks like right now it's the time to mature, especially the energy related. You know, you got, uh, you know, non-friendly countries and you want to do uh, sanctions and then hurt yourself, right? Uh, I think the America and the global Europe learned this one. Um, electrical vehicle electrification probably going to accelerate during this time. So you will see it. Uh, you can use nuclear power to generate electricity on the other way. You don't have to use a fossil fuel to be controlled by certain non-friendly countries. And also from the material side, I, I, we are working with the, the uh, G, uh, Jim, I understand, the Critical Material Institution. Open another topic because we all know Chromi was majority of them from Russia and Nikol was majority from Canada. Now we want to eliminate all the Chromi steel. What are the other steel they're going to replace? So we may see a, a material change related to stamping in the body and automotive. And then we need to see what that effect, and it may not affect it on, on our stamping related to business, right? But more and more, we looks like uh, Jim's talking about it, the tooling issues. Now we understand uh, the globalization actually last time hurts us in uh, certain situations. Um, from business enterprise leader to the political guys, I think they're both thinking about there were too much uh, for globalization. Now they step back, they understand, they learn by the hard way. So we got to thinking about what's that impact to the industry. So I believe electrification can making a lot of aluminum components for the, for the electrical vehicle. Um, well, Jim's understand we're jumping on to stuff 
the warm stamping or hard stamping aluminum looks like very promising at this moment. It's so cool that, so we've asked the same question to three experts and you all had a, there's a theme going materials. You all mentioned new materials as being critical to what's next, but I just, it was really cool to hear you all have a little bit of a twist and all really good information. So um, I'm, I'm glad we have the, we have all three of you here today to kind of bounce each other off, ideas off each other. I'm going to take your lead. You, you all mentioned it. So I'm, I'm going to go back to Dr. Danny and ask him, as a future holds, what do you see happening with, with new materials? Uh, Steve just mentioned uh, warm forming of aluminum. I know there's a lot going on, and, and obviously you're the metallurgist, the guy all about metal. That's um, your world. So what can you give our listeners some tips on what to look for when we're talking about materials and maybe what we should, some warnings about what's going to happen next with some of these new materials. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, certainly it has been great to listen to uh, Jim and Steve's comments. And uh, uh, I can only say I agree <laughs> with everything uh, that they've said. Um, uh, with with the increasing amount of aluminum that's used, um, I, I think it's also important not to lose sight of... Um, the fact that right now, I believe the average body structure, and of course, that's leaving aside the F-150, the average body structure has roughly 5% sheet aluminum in it. And so aluminum can grow by 50% uh, in their market and still be under 8% of the total body structure. So that's a very significant increase in the percentage of aluminum, but in terms of every body structure, there's still a whole lot more steel to work with. Um, so that, that, that's one perspective. Um, there's a lot more aluminum work coming, but there's still going to be a substantial amount of steel with the, um, with the EVs, with the autonomous vehicles, with any vehicle, if it makes it on the road, it has to satisfy um, federal crash safety emissions and so on requirements, no matter what the material is. And certainly you're going to get some lightweighting potential out of aluminum, um, a lot of lightweighting potential. Unfortunately, uh, aluminum is still substantially more expensive than most steel grades. So the blanket conversion of entire body structures over to aluminum, I don't see that happening um, because of cost alone. Right now, the average purchase price um, of vehicles, if I remember right, is $50,000. And that's only going to increase if we, as we transition to electric vehicles, as we transition to vehicles that have higher aluminum contents. So I think there's, while, while we all need to be aware of the potential, um, not potential, of the increases in sheet aluminum applications, uh, we need to be aware that it's not only going to be aluminum, it's going to be in the uh, higher strength steel grades. Mild steel, the steels that were common in the 70s, 80s, and probably even the 1990s, that's what's gonna go away. Um, 
It's the higher strength steels and the the collectively known as the advanced high strength steels. That's going to capture a greater percentage of the body structure. And the implications of that are um, we're, we're taught we're going from the mild steels of the previous century, which is when a lot of the investment in stamping presses and processing lines were made. We're going from the mild steels that might have a tensile strength of, uh, let's say, three to 400 megapascal. Most of the grades today that are taking up a lot of the body structure have tensile strengths three or four, some five times as high. And that means capital investment for stampers to ensure they've got um, a press with the right capacity to handle all of the higher strength grades. The um, uh, other consideration is that sheet flatness becomes more challenging to, to achieve as you go higher in strength. So the processing lines, the straighteners, uh, the blankers need to have significant upgrades because most of the uh, body structure um, is no longer at three or 400 megapascal. Most of the body structure is north of 800 and sometimes pushing 1200 or higher. So the supply base, the stamping suppliers, the straighteners, um, the, the processors need to upgrade their tooling. The other, um, uh, I think last point I'll make uh, is referencing aluminum. Um, most people have the mindset of the beer can approach. Aluminum is low strength. We can crush it um, like a, uh, a beverage can. Well, there are certainly some aluminum grades that are really low strength. But once we start uh, talking, certainly once we start talking about warm forming and hot forming of aluminum, we're getting much higher aluminum grades, um, uh, higher strength, I should say higher strength aluminum grades. And that's going to have um, implications on the on the processing equipment. Um, unfortunately, you know, downside of uh, warm and hot forming is the energy involved. And as every company is becoming more and more sensitive to um, environmental issues, the um, uh, carbon footprint of those particular grades goes up because of the higher strength. Uh, I'm sorry, because of the higher processing temperature. Thanks, Danny. Always great to get your perspective. You go deep. I know you're. This is what you do every day. So it's uh, it's it's great to have that expertise. So Jim, I, I, I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit you next. You come from a from a product design standpoint, and you've done a lot of that, and you know, engineering new products and parts and we were talking earlier about, you know, your, your Tesla experience and things like that. So what, what, can, what do you see as next? Think of it as, as, you know, we've got some young engineers that might listen to this podcast to, to learn about, okay, well, what do I have to hone my skills on? What am I going to do next? I mean, you're a great mentor. So why don't you give us your advice on what to tell the, the up and coming folks uh, as to what to prepare for now for what's next? It's a good question. And, and, and as the materials change, just like Danny was talking about, you know, years ago um, in the 70s, 
we had started with uh, some of the aluminum grades and there's a lot of learning curve because we were all used to just mild steel. And so with aluminum, you started having these different tempers that you had to worry about. So when you ordered aluminum, it's like, oh, I'm going to form a, a big part. My One of my big things was air cleaners, if you remember cars had air cleaners back then but trying to stamp an air cleaner with out of a, a aluminum is a really really difficult task to do because it work hardens we were using 5182 uh, and that's where the tempers came in you started with an old temper which is like a dead soft temper but as soon as you started to elongate it you started to build its strength up but you also lost that elongation very very quickly okay now with these new steels we're kind of starting to see the same thing you got to be got to be a little bit careful here um, a lot of the advanced high-strain steels and definitely the Gen 3 steels coming out are going to rely on strain to get the strength out of it. Um, I did a project where we were working with uh, nanosteel and uh, we could get 1200 megapascal, 50% elongation if you used the, uh, I don't know if it wasn't called tempered, but if you used like, a dead soft material and you started to strain it, so there were different levels of, of, of pre-strain that you could get in that material and you had to look, you had to be aware of that. But the biggest issue from a design standpoint was back in the old days, you knew the strength of the material, you got a part that formed the shape that you wanted to, you could calculate everything in there, and you, and you, and you knew if it looked like that part, it was going to function. Well, with these new steels, that's not the case anymore. Okay, if you relying on strain to get your strength of that part, in, to get the strength of the material in there, and you haven't strained the material enough in the forming process, you have a part that looks good, but will not function. And that's a very critical thing that we need to look at going forward. How do you guarantee that you've got it? It's like hot stamping. If, if you go through your hot stamping process and you don't take it out of the oven and get it quick enough into that dye, form it and quench it properly, you're not going to convert to martensite. So how do you test that part before you ship it and make sure that it's going to give you the functions that it has in there? And so with, with the hot stamping, they've started to work it out. They're looking at hardness. They're looking at some other stuff that they, that the processes before they ship those parts out. But it's got to be a very critical thing. With, when you get to these cold form parts, not only with aluminum, but now you've got these, these, like I said, these next generation steels coming in. That part may look good, but if you didn't, don't have some quality check in there to know that you've strained it to get the strength that you want, you're not going to have a part that functions. It's something that we got to be aware with as we're designing for these new steels coming forth forward. That's a great perspective. I really, I really appreciate that, that Jim. I never thought of it. I always, in our world. Uh, you know, working with lubricants in the press, we're happy to get a good-looking part. Oh, it looks great! Right. It holds water. <laughs> you know, um, but I hadn't, but I haven't really thought of what you know the function of the metal has to meet. You're you're using certain certain metals to to create whether it's a crash resistance or um, you know the, the tensile strength you talked about. That's that's very interesting. I uh, from yeah, my perspective, you gotta be careful, I've Jeff. It's like that, in the so. old days, if the part fit the gauge, it was great, and then. Going forward, that's not the case. That's what anymore. I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, what are you going to do for that quality check in there, right? Yes. No, that's great. I, you know what? I'm doing this 40 plus years. I've never yeah, yeah, thought it's... of that. So, thank you for pointing me in the right direction. <laughs> I always, I, we're always thinking, oh, great, we have exactly. no cracks, you know, or there's no necking, or it's, you know, the part, the part, there's no spring brack or whatever. It's, it's physically proper, but there's more to it than that. So, thanks for giving that the extra detail. Back to year 2000, James pointed out the question. We do, uh, Tower do a lot of truck frame for OEMs. 
And one of the issues we always had is the crash result it doesn't match the CAE analysis. So what I did is I cut the dog bone for every piece after stamping, remapping the, the, the CAE to look at it because the crash model had the homogeneous material. But that's not the case. When you're stamping it, the gym point out that's exactly what happened. Today's CAE for forming analysis, they can actually uh, adapt the result to the next generation crash models. To do the crash, now they got 90% confident and correlated from crash model to actually crash vehicle. And Jim pointed out exactly, on those Gen 3 steel, you need to have an amount of stretching or other things to straightening up and then the code work for them. But the part is not going to uniformly stretching it. So you got a weak spot on that one. If that weak spot line up with your stress spot, the thermal map, and then you're going to be in trouble. What are your prediction? It's not there, right? That's exactly what Jim said. The, the reality and the, the material guides is completely uh, working on their separation that's not integrated. For, for an industry like us, in the middle of them, we're perfect the guy to link both sides together. The material guides, what they know, we clearly understand that's need a code work. And then from the OEM, we designed it, and we've designed for them, we know it exactly why they need that one. You know, today's we're doing control arm for Ford exactly. Ford want to bump to a 500 uh, mic 550 well, because it was too heavy and the gauge is too heavy and then it's not meet the fatigue. And then they say, well, why don't you just go up? Yeah, it looks like easy when you go up. And then, but is that the spot where I have a high stress spot lined up with what the material thin out, right? You got to look at, yes, the material thin out, the maximum material thin out may be the, the strongest one, but the gauge wise, it changed. You got to calculate with CAE, did I counting that the material thin out 10% or 12%, right? It's it's more more complicated. And uh, the, the other things we were also thinking about for, for this, high stream material, they want to replace it, they want to put on the control arm. A lot of the things we we do is not not perfectly when, they, when we're stamping it. How consistent that data matching to the process. And then because you CAE, you can plug in computer, you calculate 100 times they're same, <laughs> right? But for a standard test that we knew it, there's a 10% deviation, that, you know, it's normal, it's nothing wrong. So it's, this is gonna be a, a huge change. And then uh, we're talking about the process for Six Sigma, uh, how the lubrication involved to making the product is more consistent from the process's point, it definitely helped also. We haven't get there yet. Whenever I hear you guys talk about this stuff and all the, the minutia you have to go through the details that are required. You said you're just talking about one part. You're talking about a control arm, and that's just one of you know thousands of parts on an automobile. It's amazing to me um, that Danny mentioned earlier today that uh, the average cost of a car is fifty thousand. That's a lot of money, but when you hear all of the engineering that goes into it, it's like it's a bargain. I mean, all of the work that people like you do to make sure this car is safe and light, and you know all of the things we have to do to make this thing. Uh, you know, operate with with today's standards is uh, it's incredible. I, I just want to interject. Um, 
especially with the things that Steve was just saying, oh my goodness, we are, we've been building cars for a hundred years. Metallurgy, metallurgy itself is, you know, more, you know, thousands or a couple of thousand years old. Um, steel industry, aluminum industry, um, new alloys are being invented. Um, most of the body structure that is used now, the steel and aluminum uh, that's used in it wasn't around 20 years ago. There's been new inventions. There are so many opportunities for people who are coming into the industry to make a difference. You know, steel is not an old and dying technology, nor is aluminum. Automaking, there are so many new innovations. Um, you know, with what Steve was saying about the uh computer-aided engineering. Um, there's a lot of things that we still don't know. There are still a lot of improvements that we can make. So younger people entering the industry, um, there's there's opportunities to make a significant difference. That's great, Dave. Yeah, I, yep. yes, I like to comment with Danish yeah, sure. already talking about aluminum versus steel. I think he got the right point. Even there's a significant increase, but just thinking about industry, the amount of the volume of produced in this one. Year, years ago, we tried to make a composite vehicle, right? GM had the composite body sheet. It doesn't work. Why? You can't find any composite industry can make a million tons of this <laughs> yes. composite material. <laughs> the infrastructure is not there. So nobody yes. going invite, to invest that much money Aluminum is going to facing the same thing. Yes, you are grow, but you are not going to double the, the things because your surround infrastructure can only produce that much. You know, you got to put more capital in the aluminum mill to solve that that problem before you move out. So there will be a gradually and go. And then Danny talking about a lot of the new material which started. I think it definitely helped with lower the gauge and everything else. My product experience, design experience tells just Daniel also point of control arm, everything else the body one. All those new steels we're talking about relate to the microstructure and hot stamping, especially the one. If I perform a weld on it, it's gone, <laughs> right? And then all my failure fatigue, they're all around the heat effective zone. If steel industry doesn't sorting out that problem, gonna be in trouble. Jim and I were working on non-heat treatable aluminum, and then that looks like a promise. That material, it doesn't matter, you melt it in the Eureka, it's still the same property. So the aluminum industry currently had a tryout, had a recipe, had a solution to solve that. The steel industry looks like it need that problem. The only reason we couldn't go to to thing to down there because they're still considering you have to join them together. You know, when you start performing the walls, you lost the strings, you lost a lot of properties, right? So that's that's what happened. Gosh, it's it's a uh, you know it's we're not just banging metal and welding it together anymore, are we? It's just kind of it's a lot. There's a lot to this, and it's uh, it's it's incredible. And I and I hope that one of our objectives of this podcast series is to is to help folks learn about what's next and how to prepare. And, and as Danny said, we. We're hoping that we can get some younger folks in, interested in our industry because um, it is exciting. It, it's, it's, and it's complex. 
So it's not as simple, you know, we're not blacksmiths, you know, there's a lot more to it than, than, than what, what, what would have may have been you know, just 10 years ago. So, uh, so glad you guys are able to share this information. I'm going to shift gears and for, for the next series of questions. And we're going to bring in Frank in a little bit this about this. So we have a, uh, a situation with um, with different materials being outlawed or questioned or gray listed or blacklisted out in the marketplace and mostly chemical based materials. So one of the ways that Jim and I met initially and, and James was we did a project with Shiloh regarding a stamping lubricant selection process where they went through a very sophisticated process of selection. And the main reason was there was chlorinated paraffin, which is an additive that's out there that's being used. Um, it's, a very, it's a very effective additive. It's a very uh, low cost additive. It's, it's very effective for lots of bang for the buck, um, but it became a environmental health and safety issue. So Frank, do you want to touch on what happened and then I'd like to get the perspective of Jim and the, and the other folks just, you know, from what they've seen, because Steve is involved with this as well now. Sure. Um, briefly, uh, different molecules, depending on what industry you're in, um, get, for better or for worse, uh, regulatory attention um, uh, focused on it. Uh, right now, there's a big push in this country and worldwide for what are kind of grouped together and called forever chemicals, sort of a marketing spiel. Um, but these are persistent organic pollutants or PBTs, persistent bioaccumulative and toxic. So basically it's it's a grab bag of, of uh, chemicals that fit the property of, they cause sort of a long-term chronic impact on uh, some target. The target could be the environment, which is distributed throughout the world. And then it ends up, you know, let's say in animals or it could be in humans that work with it or manufacture it. Um, this. The things that are in the news currently that most people will see every day that the focus is on right now deals with uh, fluorinated surfactants. And these are the precursors to Teflon. You know, if you have wrinkle-free pants, it's embedded in the fibers, that type of thing. And you know that, okay, so some engineering uh, folks and chemists came up with a property to improve a fiber. Um, then we all wash our pants and then it goes through the wastewater treatment, but doesn't get captured, ends up in the environment. And lo and behold, you find it all over the place. Um, this question's about the impact of that. Chlorinated paraffins is the is sort of an industrial example of that. Um, it comes in various different grades. It was invented in the 30s. Um, um, it was kind of a uh, needed to produce something that made limited oil supplies work better. Uh, so it was developed mostly in World War II uh, Germany uh, by German scientists. Um, and after the war, it was used uh, for a variety of things, flame retardants, um, but it really had this wonderful friction-reducing property. Um, and it would make standard oil, uh, standard oils as a lubricant last much, much, much longer. Uh, the problem is, over time, and as regulatory bodies developed, uh, people noticed uh, health issues. Um, and the way these are generally classified is usually according to the chain length of the chlorinated paraffin and for simplicity small medium and large we'll call it um, the smaller ones which are uh, a relatively low carbon chain length had acute effects and those were the ones that uh, caused cancer in humans uh, so most responsible countries and regulatory bodies started eliminating those and those are pretty much gone um, in this country and have been for decades um, what happened around the mid 2010s is the EPA started getting more interested in the larger chains, the ones that were very common, which were the substitutes. These are the so-called medium chain 
uh, or MCCPs. Um, they took the place of small chain. They were used ubiquitously uh, throughout the world. Um, uh, Urmco stopped using them in the, in the early 80s of all chlorinated paraffin types. Uh, but they're still legal. You can still use them. But in around 2015, 2016, EPA was going to drop the boom. And this was a sudden shockwave that went through our industry of uh, saying, hey, within a year, these are gone. They're off the market. You can't even eat down your old inventory. They're just banned. So that led to a lot of consternation and a lot of nervous people that relied on them. And the, the reason why they relied on them is they're wonderful as stamping lubricants. Um, not only by themselves, they cure a lot of, I'm not a dye design guy, but they cure a lot of issues related to maybe non-optimal dye design or um, material changes. They're very forgiving. Uh, the problem is they were potentially going to go away within months. Um, and that's sort of the back, uh, background, the origin story of uh, why they were being scrutinized. Um, and coincidentally, we had been looking at chemistries to replace these all, all throughout you know, our recent history. Um, that's kind of where we, we hooked up with Shiloh because they had a lot of plants that were using this type of chemistry. Um, not every one, but a significant amount. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the chemical background. Thank you, thank you, Frank. So, sure. so Jim, when we you uh, you led a, a research project to measure and quantify different lubricants, and I, I just wanted to get your perspective on, you know, how do you how do you do that from a from an advanced engineering standpoint? Okay, we we need to get rid of a material like chlorinated paraffin, but and we have multiple plants using different versions of things. How do you approach that, and how did you find the best way to approach that? potential change and okay, this ingredient's gonna leave our tool set and we have to go with something else, but we don't wanna to put too much of a shock into our system by just drop, you know, taking it out and dropping something new. And so how do you approach that from a more scientific standpoint? How'd you do that? Back in, like Frank had said, back in 2015, uh, when the EPA was threatening to um, ban all these uh, medium long chain chlorinated paraffins, we looked at our lubricant base and we were really shocked to find out that what we, because we weren't spending a lot of attention on it, and it was definitely an issue that we had to, 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 to get a hold of. Um, back then, we were members of um, Center for Precision Forming, which was down at Ohio State. Uh, Professor Tyler Alton was running it, and he was doing a lot of lubricant studies. Um, so we, we, we took some of the initial studies that he was doing, and we launched into a research project to say, let's use the uh, information that they had to start to look for alternatives that would give us the uh, the same lubricants, the same formability, uh, the the same that lack of thinning or thinning, whatever you want to talk about it. They um, they had uh, developed with uh, with Ernco, I think, at the time the I tool, which was a really really good tool that we used. Uh, we actually um, they were partnered with. Um, the uh, General Electric um, Research Labs down in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and they let us use their servo press, which then we had a lot of control over it, and we started to characterize these different lubricants. And we, we invited a lot of people. We had maybe 15 different types of lubricants and lubricant companies that were supplying stuff. We had synthetics. We still had the oil-based um, uh, lubricants in there. And we started to use this thing to say, how do we do this? And what are the materials that we're using? And Shiloh was kind of uh, a good base to use because we had we were stamping aluminum. 
we were stamping stainless steel, we were stamping mild steel, and we were stamping advanced high strength steels. And so we had some very, very complex shapes that we were trying to do uh, with all these different materials. And so we tried to, to use that basic uh, methodology that was developed at CPF, and uh, we, we narrowed it down to maybe three or four different lubricants. And that's where then it starts to get very, very tricky because all of our plants have different ways that they're applying the lubricants. You know, and in the old days, you got a good part, you got a good part, nobody cared. Now we do care. And so we started to look at, okay, how do we, how do we start to understand the lubricants and how do we, how do we apply those lubricants? So we started to work with, with different companies and we started to use the thermal imaging in our tools itself. We started to look at where the hot spots were, how do you apply those lubricants, where is the best place to do that? Um, and we started to learn a lot about the synthetic lubricants that we really didn't pay attention to before. And this is where, uh, when the EPA dropped the, 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 uh, the threat, of getting rid of the chlorinated paraffins, it wasn't, oh, okay, let's go back to business as usual because we learned a lot uh, from that study and we, we continue to do that study. What we learned uh, is that, okay, these synthetic lubricants were cleaner, they were water soluble, they didn't smell like the old, um, the old, uh, uh, the, uh, the oil-based lubricants. And if, you, if you've ever been in a stamping plant with a, in the bottom of that pit where all that lubricant sits there for years and years and years. It is a disgusting thing to have. That would go away. We, we, we would have to, when we, we cleaned our stuff, the oil-based um, lubricants, we would have to, to, to do, uh, treat that water separately with, with the synthetic lubricants. We didn't have to do that anymore. And so we started to look a little bit closer saying, gosh, let's Let's take a look and see, is there an advantage to going to some kind of a synthetic-based lubricant? And there was a lot of advantages, but to really understand it, you had to step back and take a look at the holistic approach. You couldn't just say, oh, that lubricant is X amount per liter and that lubricant is X amount per liter. They both work, so therefore I'm going to take the cheapest one because it doesn't work that way. If you, if you learn to apply it differently, if you look at the dilution rates, if you really look at the technology that we have to reduce the amount of lubrication, put the lubrication where you want it correctly, and then you start looking at the dilution rates and the cost, it actually became a, a big cost savings for us to move to these synthetic lubricants. Now, there are issues with it. Uh, for some of the really, really deep draw things like an oil pan, we still need a lot of development. We, the, the chlorinated paraffins right now are still needed to make those deep draw parts. Okay, I think we might be able to get there, but it's gonna take some more research to get there. But for the majority of the parts, we were really happy that our stainless steel parts, we could go to some of these, these uh, synthetic lubricants and we could do that. So now we had the question of, okay, when you make that change, you've gotta be really careful with how you introduce it into the system because your customer has to know what's going on. Luckily, these things are water soluble and they wash off, but you still have to go through the, the validation process because if something leaches off into the, into the, into the paint bake, uh, the, the paint ovens or, or the um, e-code ovens, and it causes something that's going to really be a problem with 
with the surface condition of the paint that comes out of that final product in the car, you got an issue. So you have to work with your customer base, and we've worked through a lot of that stuff. We've proved that, hey, when we go through the wash cycle for the parts that are washed, it doesn't matter. Now when the parts that we don't wash, okay, what's going to happen to that? So we slowly started to change over to the point, um, the point where we have converted most of the stuff over that way, not everything yet, um, but it was driven mostly by cost. You know, purchasing and purchasing when they first looked at it said, well, this lubricant is more than this lubricant, so why would you got to do that? That's when we said, no, look at the total picture. Look at what you're doing. Look at how you're diluting it. Look at how you've got to get in there. And that's where, you know, and I don't want it to become a commercial for Ernco, but they've developed those little carts to come in. And, and, and you start to look at your, your tooling. You start to look at where your hot spots are. And you start to look at how I'm putting a lot of lubricant over here. Do I really need it? No, I need it over here. So let's, let's reduce the amount of that lubricant in there. And then you start to look at the dilution rates that you really need. And then you look at cost of A plus cost of B. And you could say, no, here's the advantages for moving to some of these synthetic lubricants where you can do that. And, and so there's a lot that we learned about it. Plus, now, I think Danny said it, or somebody said it, where we're looking towards the environment. We're looking at what's more sustainable. You know, what do we have to do going forward? And what's going to give us a competitive advantage as a stamper? And if I can say, hey, listen, I have now used, I am using in my plant everything that is sustainable for the future and my competitor isn't, there are going to be OEMs that are going to let us use that as a competitive advantage. So moving forward, we have to start looking at things like that. That's great, Jim. I um, so so Jim was the one. His department was the one that kind of did the whole study, this holistic approach. Steve, you were talking earlier about looking at you know the uh, the computer aided design and, and all that with parts. Now you're the now now you're the one that kind of took the baton from Jim's group and is is actually going through this cost analysis and efficiencies and all that from a lubricant standpoint. Can you give any perspective to the listener as to what you're seeing? You know, the, what's the best way, or is there any any suggestions on how to implement a new lubricant when you're replacing things like more conventional oils and things like that? Do you have any any wisdom to share on that? Jim has talking a lot of those things. I think he almost covered everything else. I like to make it up for years. We've been trying to do this. Find the uh, ideal to find the best lubrication for best the product, you know, the material skin stamping. It's uh, when we focus on those things, we actually uh, more focused on the steel dye still the same way. We changing the matrix of the product and we changing the lubrication, we change the gate because of the heavy stamping, you gotta have a high pressure contact, you want to be scarcely higher, you know, the dilutory gym talking about those things, it's almost we did a very good homework from the industry point, I look at But uh, us, we, we, we know it. The same dye you can stamping aluminum, a, a stamping steel doesn't mean you can stamping the same gauge aluminum, right? The friction coefficient between those two is significant different. But years we're doing the study, we haven't done anything about the dye. What happened if we coating the dye with different thing that lubrication functional more sticky on the dye? Let's say this way. And then you will never able to get rid of that. All your film you establish using static lubrication. That part, I think, would be Frank can find out some R&D. You can recommend the tooling guys to, to coding unique material 
on the die. So help the lubrication stay on the die. You know, you you can be a much better performance than you do not have that one. So because we didn't changing the mattress on on the die portion of them, so I I thinking there's lots of homework for future to do it. And then、uh, by switching the die,、uh, the, the the new lubrication, the work we have done on the R and D, not able to implement quickly because the operation culture is not there. From engineer and then the the lubrication supplier needed to develop a successful story, the process, the procedure I'm talking about, try to nail them down to changing the culture. A lot of things is good, but if you don't use it right, like shallow certain plant doesn't mix it. They just shake it and they thinking that's a mix. That's not <laughs> the case. <laughs> you know, you gotta follow the procedure. It's not just you know lubrication one water have four and then you mix together, but you didn't mix it and then it will never able to function, right? Right. How we can implement the, the successful procedure to make sure guiding them to do it right? We got right stuff, but they didn't do it right. That's another hurdle for for license to learn for this year. You know, we we started a certain country、uh, followed very well. You know, I I work for different、uh, regional, different countries, Asia, and and then、uh, when I early year I was working for we have.、Uh, A driveline and axle was failed、uh, during the wilds and then starting. I said, "Well, who who does the inspection?" That they said, "Well, we have a hundred percent inspection. We have automated, but still broken it. <laughs> the first vehicle on the on the four four lots, and then、uh, when they drive on the I five fifty, the shaft was follow up because it's not welded together. <laughs> you know, I have to send almost fifty of my engineer go to." Michigan truck to driving every single vehicle, developable procedure, hit the brake and then maximum throttle. If not broken, this one go on the truck to ship it. <laughs> so all my engineer and it's a hot summer. The seats was burning hot. They only set in five minutes to get this procedure, put a sticker on it. What happening is the guy inspection wasn't even doing his job. Oh wow! And then you you go to the service, you go to a Nissan or either the Japanese OEM with drive line axle shipping from Japan, has a little sticker on it, have two persons sign the signature on it. I talked to my boss. I said, "Well, can we do this?" No, no, that's against human being. You can't do it. So this is exactly we had a procedure. We have everything over there, but they're just not doing it、mm. right. The cultural, I think. It's a part, another part of a successful story we implement. Jim talking about all the technicals. I want to talking about、uh, the other things we have to do right to make it change. Yeah, the culture is the culture is so important. It really is. So, Steve, your comments about culture are, are right on because if you, you you can have the best designs and the best processes, but if people aren't 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 utilizing them or following them, or we've got situations where you know a simple thing like lubricant mixture. All you have to do is put it in a logbook every day because you want to know where your mixture was based on residues or things like that. And if someone's not putting it in the logbook, they're not checking it. You're not getting that information that you need. Something just as simple as that can sometimes be forgotten, and it can lead to issues later on. It could be expensive. It could be, you know, some. It could be residue or corrosion issues based on not knowing what your what your mix ratio is. And it's just people just aren't 
aren't always paying attention to that. So getting your culture to, to buy into what you're saying, to buy into the, the procedures that you've put in is, is the best way to get whatever these advanced technology, these advanced technologies or, or in, in a case of, in our case of lubricant, the best way to make it happen is to make sure people are following those procedures. So thank you for that little commentary. Want to shift gears here um, into our third topic, and that's Industry 4.0. We've done some unique things uh, regarding that. We, we think we just came out. We have a patent on a device that we're we're giving to clients to use. Where this is not a, an economic thing. We're not selling it. It's we call it Ermco Insight. We're trying to help the industry document their costs. Um, I'd, I'd like to have Frank comment on it just to kind of introduce, because Frank is one of the patent holders of this of, of this of this instrument or device. I'd like him to introduce it and then like to get your three comments on on how uh, Industry 4.0 is going on or what you've seen, your insights, and, and, and how something like, like what we're doing might be effective for folks. So, Frank, do you want to comment on that? Sure. Maybe five years ago, I was sitting in a conference call and there was a problem one of our larger customers. Uh, all of a sudden, they were having tooling issues. And this was unusual. We had this account for maybe a dozen years, 10, 10-ish years. And one of the things that they were they really liked was we supported them well, and they never really had any issues related to tooling. It's kind of what we're known for, uh, having lubricants that foster uh, good tool life. So this was really unusual. So the first question that we would ask anyone who asked, like, okay, what changed? Uh, nothing changed, nothing changed. So we deployed our usual field engineers. They, they try to go figure out what's going on. Lo and behold, somebody decided to try to quote unquote save money. Um, and they started diluting the product down without telling anyone. This was just someone's great idea and off they ran. And it was fine for a little while, but where mechanisms are cumulative. And this one took a little bit of time to show up but then it started to show up and this was a, uh, I'd say two weeks of physically deploying people, checking records, asking what's going on. And by the way, they had switched it back. So it wasn't like we went in, checked concentrations and said, aha, there's the problem. Well, it turns out that there was some reference somewhere and when we did ask the people, oh yeah, we changed that for two weeks or whatnot. I've been on more conference calls than I can count when it comes to like, okay, what went wrong or, or how did that happen or what changed? And it usually comes down from our world to general buckets. Um, the first is concentration control and the second is application. Application is a big topic, whether it's the amount or where it's directed or but something, how do you physically apply it? Do you apply it correctly? And frankly, this really annoyed me. I'm like, we've solved this problem umpteen times. Um, so we had been doing a lot of sensorification, I guess, if you want to call it that, in our own plant. And uh, Steve Glowitz, my partner in crime on this, is our plant manager. And we'd gotten where we could kind of dial up on our computer what was going on with our process. And we were chatting about this, like, well, can we do the same thing and help our customers do that? And that was kind of the origin of this. Fast forward a couple of years um, and the cart that uh, device that Jim was mentioning kind of became this thing. So uh, Ermco Insight is, is our contribution to try to help customers uh, optimize and use minimal application and to foster Industry 4.0, at least the beginnings of it. It's not officially something that's controlling something, but right now on a project basis, we can deploy this device, insert it into a customer's process, and then we can stream data. Uh, right now, I analyze it. We could send it to the customer every day. You know, every five minutes, it's capturing a data point. It's capturing application volume, the job number, uh, the amount deposited, the concentration. 
uh, things like that. And, and the zoomed out big picture that you really want to get to is what's my cost per piece, cost per stroke, and or identifying like, wait a second, why is part A costing three times as much as part B? Um, and and there, there's whole topics, again, I can talk about this. We presented on uh, a few uh, real surprises that we found where it literally comes down to training and or just customary behavior where all that one we uh, we spray twice and it looks the same as the one that maybe you don't spray twice you know one's a left one's a right well why and the whole idea is to kind of bubble up to the top the most pertinent data so you can act on it anybody can have a book you know a log book if nobody reads it it you might as well not even record the data so it's data it's not information you really need people who to know where, where to look, how to analyze, and where do I target my effort? Because like what Steve was saying, you know, he had to deploy 50 engineers to solve this acute problem. The whole idea here is to kind of keep, keep it an awareness of what's going on. So that's kind of what we were trying to do. And again, it's just a service we, uh, we like to help our, our customers improve their process. Yeah, it's, it's been very exciting seeing that. And we just, even with the mixture, you know, we can get the BRICS readings live and we can, and we know if, if their mixer is wrong or someone touched it. It's just as if it's an information point that's been really valuable. So we're we're pretty excited about it. But I I know Danny, I heard you speak recently about data collection, and one of the things you were talking about was tonnage monitor on a on a press. And, the, and I think the example you gave was, and I don't want to exaggerate, but it was like I don't know thirty tons. It was three corners were the same, and then the fourth corner was four times whatever the, the other three corners. But people weren't paying, they weren't using the devices that they had hooked up to their press. I mean, they had tonnage monitors and there's a reason for that. So can you comment on your view on data collection and how it might help folks with, you know, people call it 4.0 now, smart factories, things like that. I'm sure you've got some ideas because you always got something to say about, <laughs> about this stuff. So, Well, most of the companies I work with are the... Um, tier two and lower in the automotive supply chain and um, many, many non-automotive companies. Um, so out of the companies I work with, almost all of them have heard of tonnage monitors and almost none of them use tonnage monitors. Or if they do, they have them um, corralled in one corner of their uh, plant. Um, Maybe they're working, maybe they're not, but they're not even hooked up. And, um, you know, there's a lot of information that you can get out of the, and again, just basic tonnage monitors, like the example you just said, Jeff. Um, you know, if we're having a problem in one of the four corners and the tonnage in that corner is either substantially above or below the rest, perhaps that's a good place to look if we want to try problem solving. Um, fortunately, a lot of the tier ones and, uh, and OEMs do have at least a tonnage monitor available, whether they consult that for problem solving is, is another question. Um, the more data, the better. Um, most of the projects I have are trying to do to trying to root cause stamping problem uh, production stamping problems. Where is it coming from? 
since my background um, is is on the sheet metal side, of course, the one of the instincts when there's a stamping problem, it's because bad metal was shipped in. Sometimes, certainly, that's the case. Not all the time. And so I try to help the companies go through some type of logical process to figure out where, uh, how it initiated, how the split or neck or dimensional issue uh, initiated because it was perfect before and somebody else must have made some change. And the only way to get information um, is to get data. Uh, the best tool for problem solving um, in stamping plants and probably in general is a tool every one of us learned when we were six years old watching Sesame Street. Play the game. Which one of these things is not like the other? If you have a history of a part and you've documented the inputs, you can easily see what's changed over time. Did the metal properties change? Did the lubricant concentration change? Did the tooling surface change or did we recently sharpen the tools? But we need to have that baseline quantified. We need to know not just what the lubricant is that we're um, using, but what's the concentration? Where is the application? Um, where, where, how are we applying it? And when is the best time to characterize the sheet metal, the lubricant, the tooling condition? Obviously, it's a tooling buy-off. At tooling buy-off and at the start of production, we have everybody agreeing we have a robust part. We have the stamping, manufacturing group, engineering group, quality group, every group, purchasing group. Everybody is saying at that point, we've got a good product and we're um, happy with everything. Document everything at that point. No, don't just rely on the metal certs that you get. Send out a sample, um, characterize the properties in all dimensions, not just the tensile properties, but what's the surface roughness of the sheet metal. What is, characterize the lubricant in terms of how much you're applying, where it's being applied. Um, there's, save a blank at that point when, you know, save your first off blank and you can make sure your blank dimensions haven't changed. Make sure the gauging hasn't changed. Now it's a lot of work to do up front, but when there's a problem down the road, you have the data to go back, see what's changed, dial everything back to where your nominal uh, conditions are. And the, the product that you're describing, the, the Armco Insight uh, machine, it's per really, really good to get um, accurate information of where you've started so that when there is a change and changes happen in production intentionally or inadvertently on second or third shift, you've got something to dial back to. That's great, Danny. I remember uh, in the old days when I would go into a into a plant, you know, I was much younger and I didn't know a whole lot about die setup and stuff. And, and then they would use shims and things to get a die ready and everything. And then right. and it was only like George did that. 
Yes. Well, when George was at, when George was on vacation, <laughs> it didn't happen. It didn't happen because no one knew what shims and where to put them and all that. They couldn't run that part that day. Exactly. And uh, you know they didn't document the process. They didn't know where they where it was. So when George wasn't around, they couldn't run it. They couldn't. So I mean, I know where that stuff still happens. Mm, I think it in happens some places where all the time. Certain people are are critical to the operation. So we shouldn't, I mean, people are critical and that's what Steve was saying earlier. Culture is important. Exactly. But we should also have this all written down and somehow in some way to measure it and quantify it. So and don't forget, Jim, it, George is going yeah. to retire and be yeah, replaced retire, yeah. and be replaced <laughs> by somebody who's 22 years old and eager and really passionate, but doesn't have the 35 years of experience to right. know what to tweak. Yep, document, exactly. get exactly. data. That's the only way we are. Any manufacturing company is reliant on data for consistent production. Yes. The good news is these younger generations coming up um, are, are data driven yes. folks because they've grown up with it. So that's going to be that's good for our industry. But Jim, what's your perspective on this whole data collection, data measuring? You know, what do you see it from your in your world? I think that you know, Danny. Danny hit a lot of good points, and and um, but I, but part of the problem is budgets and manpower. Um, let's talk about material coming in. Okay, for a PPAP, you normally want to you wanted to um, to look at the uh, material properties. So you look at the certs. Well, the certs are not always the same material you're running in your press, and there's the biggest problem in our lab. Whenever a piece of material came in, we asked for the certs and then we sent our material out or we characterized it ourselves. Once we built our own lab, we could do our own material characterization and we could see, no, it's not to that cert. Or that cert has such a wide window. Where in that window are you? And so that's exactly what Danny is saying is you need to spend a little bit more time looking at the the actual details of what you're what you're logging in there and if you spend the time to do that you will know later on what something was changed a lot of times they don't do that though why don't they do that because they're limited on time they don't want to spend the budget to do that they haven't put in the quality of the lab i've, I've been into plants where they don't they're not even running their tensile machines you know and they should they, I mean, they're sitting in the corner there's dust on it I don't even know if they, and so, wait a minute, you know how to do this, right? You just don't do it. And so I think it's a discipline that needs to go. And I think what Industry 4.0 is going to hopefully do is it's going to start to force people to collect this information. And then with artificial intelligence coming in, you're going to be able to go back and you're going to be able to look at these things and say, okay, here's what changed. Now let's go back and look at that so that we can quickly get to the root cause of that problem without a lot of finger pointing. Because like you said, the first thing that the die guy wants to say is it's the material, right? The first thing the material guy says is the tooling, right? And, and then it goes back and forth and back and forth. And unless you have some data to point to, you'll never solve the problem. The other thing I think that that is a really difficult thing to measure. I mean, you and, I, and we're going to get better at this, but we're not there yet. Okay, when you look at some of the some of the stuff, look at the lubricants and you start looking at when you're measuring, they're doing a the thermal analysis and you're looking at, did you put the lubricants in there? Well, that's got to be part of this BPAP, which is not today. This is, the, this is the, the image that I had. This is what I used. And so I got a good part here. If I'm not getting a good part, let me pull those images back up. You know, it's, 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 it's like in, in, in the doctor, you got an x-ray from 10 years ago, you got an x-ray now, oh God, there's a problem, okay? <laughs> 
So, yeah, I've been through that, right? But, <laughs> but still, it's, it, you, we, we've got to spend more time documenting the correct stuff up front. Once that PPAP, once you've got that documentation and you have that instrumentation available to you, you're going to produce a, a good part for a long, for a long, long time. But you've got to connect those two things together, you know, and, and there are tools to do it. It's just that there's a discipline that needs to be put in there. And what you find out is that in most cases, when you're in trouble, the discipline hasn't been followed. I mean, it's as simple as, and you're looking at your, your punches, uh, or you're looking at your trim seals, especially with these new high strength materials. If you start to let your, um, your maintenance go and you start to get a different break on that thing, now you're going to start to tear. Okay, now why is it tearing? Well, it's tearing maybe because you didn't maintain your punch. We've had that issue a lot of times. And unless you're, you're logging it in and you're saying, after every minute, X amount of parts, I'm going to go back in and I'm going to, you know, re-sharpen those punches or replace them, you know, or replace, sharpen those trim steels. If you haven't done it, then you're going to have a problem and you're going to start blaming the material. And it's not the material, it's your own maintenance. So that discipline of doing it, understanding, first of all, what are the critical things to look at? And then the discipline of continually monitoring those things is what's really going to become in the future. And I think that's where more of this industry 4.0 and some of this AI stuff is really going to start to benefit us. It's not there in the stamping world yet. I think we're moving in that direction. It's starting to become more and more important in the casting world, which Shiloh had parts of, where the process, you're melting a material and then you're re-solidifying that material. So you have to really monitor a lot of those things anyway to know what's going on. We're going to start pushing that into the stamping world. That's great, Jim. Thanks for that. And uh, you're right. And what I, what I love about today is um, you guys all agree, but you always have something else to mention. So I appreciate that. Um, let's wrap it up here, Steve. I, I know you're a data guy. Um, you, you talked about it earlier when you were in earlier uh, examples. So when you see your industry 4.0 coming on, what do you see and how do you can advise our listeners as to, you know, what, what to watch for and make sure that you do? Well, I think Daniel started to cover this question talking about the year's experience is very important. It's a, it's a document in the brain, right? It's, it's maybe not in the paper or computer at that age. Today, the people left and then the knowledge is going to be gone. And then you got to start learning over again. That's very good to start from beginning of the, the issues, the cost, how we try to avoid this. Things. Um, Jim talking about perfectly cover the garbage in, garbage out issues. We had the, the search of the, the, that's garbage. That's not represented. We need the internal verification. How accurate that data is very critical to us, right? That is important. Um, let's say today's industry, all the issues I have during my career time, uh, in the initial, when I worked, start the industry, I saw that the, the, the problem gonna solve easily because there was always a root cause. And then later on, my experience for last 27 years, there were never an issue had a single root cause. So the root cause is getting more complicated because the simple one, the human brain can handle it, but the, the complicated matrix, the problem, you had the variables through each variables infected this process, it can cause the problem. Or the combination can cause the problems. So it's getting harder, harder for a people just had experience can handle that one. 
right? Uh, we, we have a guy, a tuning guy, maybe he knows the setup, but he doesn't have the knowledge about this type of material. It, it can be a no help at all, right? So what I want to thinking is that we need to look at the, not only had the right information, but also looking for how the data interaction each other using the future computer power to solve that issue. The AI, the technology is moving into it. And Jim had experiments we use the AI uh, part of to, to weld, uh, laser weld aluminum, right? Aluminum is fine, theoretically able to weld it, laser weld it, but when you're doing the industry level, you need a precise. The windows is really small. If you don't, you miss that the process window, you fail. So the AI coming in exactly find the right spot and then to, to adjust the process on time. Danny uh, talking about the tonnage issues. If the tonnage started having a, a, a problem, before you look at that one, the machine should tell you, today I drive on the car, my car says my left tire, hey, there's a warning, I don't have a gas, I don't have an air pressure, right? So. Don't go too far, right? You know that's what's happening. The industry 4.0 basically can help you to avoid that one. The computer says checklist to go through it. Oh, you have three or two optimus warning. You can't do this one right now. You're just scrapping part all the way today, today, right? You fix it better. Things like that one, the data is getting more important. And then the data for future computer automate checklist and also the optimizations. Um, recently, we we're talking about the hot forming aluminum and the warm forming aluminum. We find out the forming aluminum is a completely different than the forming limitation chart. Because when you're heating the aluminum at a higher temperature, the speed of the tensile is driving to completely different than, the, than just the temperatures. So you got the combination, you have to find the best sweet spot for forming that material. It's became more complicated. Without the right data input, and then you can actually doing it the right way. You can try millions of times to get there, right? Only computer can help you to do that one, to optimize, to changing the parameters. And in this world, we're only talking about two variable can changing for a warm forming aluminum. But they maybe have this third one gonna come in. We haven't talked about the die coding yet, right? We, get, we didn't cut talking about all the other things that you know then clearly understand from a material side we're not there yet without the right data there's no way we can give the computer the garbage data that even worse <laughs> than you then your human brain can think about oh that maybe not that maybe the data wasn't right the computer doesn't know that right yeah that's what i, I want to say uh the metalsa I did, I have a industry 4.0 group. I have an automation group did that. One of the press line and one of the assembly line, the CEO can see that. He just plug into the company web chart, can see the downtime for every single press and what issue can see it. Basically, why I doing that one? The issue's gone because they all knows, the plant manager knows, the press supervisor knows, the CEO, if you go on the company webpage, they can see it. They gotta fix it right away. They're freed off this one. Not really the industry 4.0 functional, but actually the change in the culture. It, it, you, you can mix all the things together. You find out 
the guy jumping on the problem fast because if the guy see the line down for 15 minutes, each minute I lost thousand bucks. What's going on right here? This line, right? He's gonna picking up the phone call. Does he actually look at that that company internal web page to look at the, what's the downtime, what's the issue? He may not, but people know he has a capability to look at. It's changing the game. Yeah, that that's great. That, that's actually a really neat, interesting story. So、um, we're we're reaching the end of our of our podcast today. Before I turn it back over to James Rappaport, I wanted to thank you all for participating and and.、Uh, Sharing all of your knowledge、um, and your valuable time with us,、um, this has been really productive. I, I've been doing this, you know, like I said earlier, forty plus years. I learned a lot today, <laughs> myself. So、um, this this has been great, and I hope our listeners can appreciate the the value of,、uh, of everything that you guys have said and shared today. So, James, you want to you want to wrap this up and close this out? All right, I want to.、Uh, you know, the reason I started this podcast, the reason I wanted to do it. Was I wanted it to new people in automotive? I wanted them to hear from gentlemen like you guys. And the three things that I think they're going to take away from today is number one: if they're in any management at a company, make sure you're mentoring your young automotive people coming up in the industry. I think number two, which was hit on a lot, is data, 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 and that's why. Our company and Shiloh, for example, works so well together because we love data and we like to work together on solving issues. And so that's where our strong suit is: is data. So that was awesome that you touched on it. And number three, just just developing new things in the industry. Just listening to you guys, I've only been doing this for five years, but just listening to you guys and what you bring to the table, I learned a ton. So I just want to thank you guys as well,、um, Danny. How does somebody reach you if they want to for mentoring, or also if you want to、uh, hire you to help with issues that come up in automotive? Well, James,、uh, I want to add the fourth thing that you might have、uh, left out as to what's、um, what you might have gotten out of this is that there are opportunities in the industry for、uh, young and old. There's many opportunities that、uh, that still exist,、um, but for those who want to、uh, talk with me about、uh, the impact and influence of materials on stamping processes. Uh, again, my name is Danny Schaeffler. The company name is Engineering Quality Solutions. Website is eqsgroup.com, and、um, my uh, direct uh, line is two four eight sixty six steel. Although we do work on、uh, aluminum and stainless steels as well,、um, certainly love to、uh, speak to anybody who's interested in the field. Thank you, Danny. Jim, how do we? How does somebody get a hold of you? Well, I just started because、uh, I just、uh, semi-retired back in January. So my email address is、um, simple. It's J I M Jim dot E V like Victor number one at Outlook dot com. I don't have a website. I'm not as fancy yet, Stanny. I don't know that I'll ever get there.、Um, but my phone number, if you need to get me, is two four eight nine seven four. Six seven five five. Just remember, though, that I'm old school, and 
I don't carry my phone around with me all the time. So always leave a message if you need me. Uh, don't just call and, uh, yeah, don't call and, and think I'm going to call you back because I get all these numbers from these spam calls and everything. Uh, leave a message and I will definitely get back with you if you need something. And uh, I think that's it, yeah. Steve, how does somebody get a hold of you for maybe like mentorship or just common questions, things like that? Um, most recently, they actually go on LinkedIn, actually LinkedIn, and then they go searching me and then they question me, want to be consultant on this thing. Some of the Wall Street investment firm actually uh, had a consultant for future, what other industries go, they needed to have a non-conflict interest. For example, they want to private investor firm want to invest money to Matosa, they want to say, hey, this is the formal executive, I want to know exactly what's going on in that company. Right, so my name is Steve X dot Lin at the LinkedIn, and over there you can reach me, and then anytime, and then uh, I check my LinkedIn almost every day. So, so that that should be fine. Most often they are linked with me over there asking questions, and then so send an email later on, send an email to me, and then we have a phone calls. We have a uh, different way to, to work with. As long as it's not a conflict interesting, I, I'm willing to help. And I will, I have a couple thank yous I would like to thank at the end, some people that are behind the scenes that made this possible. I mean, Jeff and I are eye candy, but there's actual people that did a lot of work behind the scenes. One is Frank Kenny. I really appreciate all the work that you did on this. And then Mike Krakow and Anna in the office and Jennifer everybody behind the scenes. I really appreciate it. And let's make lubricant great again.